We come to the church of Laodicea, uh, a very familiar, very, uh, many of you know it, but I think that uh, because it's so familiar, it's the most likely to be disregarded or to be neglected. So we need to ask the Lord for, for help, so let's pray. Lord, we come to you because you have everything. We have nothing. We need you. And so we come and we ask that you would make this time profitable. Lord, I would just not be up here just as a, because this is something we do every Sunday. But that this would be a th- a, something that we do because we acknowledge our need for you. We need to be transformed by the by your word we need to be changed so i pray you'd start with me you'd work in my brothers and sisters in christ here we pray these things in jesus name amen so put your bibles to revelation 3 revelation 3 it's the last chapter it's the last book of the bible and as you do that i want to share a story um not in any way as a uh as a model to you, but just as a point of illustration uh, about my family, uh, kind of peel the peel the uh, give you some insight into the life in in our family at bedtime. So usually we, we try to do family worship. It's oftentimes hit and miss depending on um, of what's going on that night. But we do it right before bedtime, and then we send the kids to bed. Kind of a staggered schedule, and what happens is um, is is, is I don't know if it's uh, indicative of, of just us or everybody else, but, but my bedtime ritual is usually, good night, I love you, now go to sleep. You know, but my wife's ritual is like, there's a 30-minute procession. I've tried to figure out what goes on, but I've lost interest, and I just give up, and I, I leave. But there's like giggling, there's all this, you know, I don't know what goes on because I don't stick around. But it's, it's, it's quite amazing, you know, this, this, this marathon of before bedtime. But occasionally, what I'll do is sometimes I'll linger after uh, my wife leaves, and I'll go into my kids' bedrooms, and occasionally I'll, I'll ask them if they want a blessing. And if they say yes, you know, I'll put my hand on their forehead, and I'll just say something sim- simple. I'll say their name, and I'll say, may you be a young man who grows to fight what is, for what is good or what is, what is right. Or I'll put my hand on my daughter, one of my daughters, and I say, you are God's special gift to me. I love you. Good night. Or something like that. But occasionally there's a very seldom, uh, them for whatever reason, I'll ask them if they want a blessing. And at that point, you know, I never feel, I'm never hurt by that. I never, uh, my self-image or my, who I am is never hurt by that. But I feel a sadness for them. And I feel that because at that moment, I as their father want nothing for them other than just to tell them that I'm for them, that I love them, that I care for them, that I hope, um, that my hopes are for them. I think in many ways we are like that child to our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father says, I want to bless you. Do you want a blessing? Do you want a blessing? And sadly, I think many of us say, ah, no thanks. And at that very point, God says, I want to bless you. My heart is for you. I want you to know that I'm a God who cares for you. And we say, no thanks. 
Do you believe that God wants to, to bless you? I know he wants to bless you. Now, as a disclaimer, in the same way that um, I don't go to all your houses and bless your kids, um, although maybe that might be a good like side job, but um, um, I don't do that. In the same way, the, the way that the Lord wants to bless you is not true if you're not a son or a daughter of his. So I, you can't claim, and I can't tell the Lord wants to bless you. In fact, the Bible says something far different to you. But if you're a son and a daughter, I know that the Lord wants to bless you. And how does he want to bless you? In what way? Well, the book of Revelation. It starts out at uh, the, very, the very first chapter of Revelation. In Revelation 3, it says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his, this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So he's saying, the book of Revelation is my blessing to you. The words that are in it, for those who keep it. And just if, you've, if you kind of miss the story, or if you kind of don't get that, he reminds you at the end of Revelation. Revelation 22, 7, it says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So how are we blessed? How are we blessed? We're blessed by a vision of God. We're blessed by the point of revelation. And what is the point of revelation? The point of revelation is that God will win. I hope you've seen that in a little, in a little bit in these, these seven messages. It's that we will overcome if we are his sons and daughters. As one quote says, at the beginning of revelation, we are challenged to overcome. In the middle, we see the struggle to overcome. And at the end... We see the inheritance that overcomers will receive. See, I think the sad part is many of us just disregard the book of Revelation. In fact, I was talking to one person years ago, and they said she she went to church every Sunday morning. She even played the piano, but she said, you know what, if I know that there's ever a message in Revelation, I won't go. Because it made her afraid. You know, because there's these stories of dragons and beasts and plagues and battles. And it terrified her. She missed the whole point of Revelation. So I hope that in this time, the, my, our hope is that you understand that the book of Revelation is not to be, for you to be afraid. It's to understand that God will win. And for those that overcome, we will win as well. But there's a second reason I want to talk about Revelation <clears throat> and before I get into this text. I've often wondered about ch- chapters 2 and 3. I mean, have you thought about that? Even up until... Uh, this this series, Revelation 2 and 3, I always thought these seven letters were kind of like this high schooler who has a 10-page paper but only has eight pages of good content, right? And so he kind of throws in like these extra two pages of stuff that's kind of linked to his paper but not really. I always thought that was kind of what like the seven churches' letters were. But listen, God does not waste one word. There is not one unneeded word put in the Bible. Every word that God gives us is helpful and is profitable. So what is the purpose of these seven letters that he's given to us? I hope you've seen the goodness of God in these. His heart for the seven churches, he wanted to tell them about the future. He's, he's saying, hey, church, these seven churches, hey, there's things going on that are going to happen in the future. But I want you to know that there's things that I'm going to, that I want to I see in your life that I want to commend to you.
but I also need to rebuke you about some things because there's some things that aren't right. He wants them to, he tells them, I have a right now word for you. And so we see that the church, the local church, these churches are central and dear to God. These seven churches are symbolic of all the churches through the ages, and every local church can identify with at least one of these churches. So I hope you've, you've seen that in, these, in this time of these seven churches. So let's go to our verse, verses, starting in verse 14, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, he says this, And an angel of the church of Laodicea write, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. I am not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, rich, and so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to, to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has near, let him hear what the seven churches says. To the, he who is near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> so first of all, we start off chapter 3, verse 14, with a solution. It's the same pattern that we see in all of the, the other churches. It's the Christ identifies himself as the solution to the problem of, the, of this church. He identifies in three ways. He says, first, I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of God's creation. So we come, and the question that's going to be before us today, the question that, we're going to, that you'll need to answer is, do you believe that Jesus is the solution to the problem? Whatever it is, do you think you need something else? Or do you think that Jesus is enough? As they'll see, whether it's for you as a church, whether it's you, us as a church, whether it's you as an individual, the question that's before us is, do you believe God? Do you believe Jesus is the answer? So he says it in three ways. He says the amen. Basically, when you pray and you say amen, you're saying, may this be so, so be it. You're agreeing or you're assenting to this. And God is saying, you know what? I'm the true God in the life of all these other counterfeits. I'm the one who is true. And then he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. I was reading a quote from uh, reading in, from Stephen Charnock, an old Puritan, to, this week. The existence and attributes of God. And he talks about God. He's saying this eternal, this perfect image 
this perfect God. In all of him, the excellencies and glories and goodness of all things reside in him. And so, if that's the case, anything he gives, says, or commands us can only be good. There's no, he says, no base intention, meaning no evil or bad intention, can proceed from God to us. Anything that he says to us, because he's only good, because he's only an excellent, eternal, glorious God, nothing he commands us to do can be bad or base. And then he says a very difficult text right here, a verse. And we have to acknowledge this. It says, the beginning of God's creation. So some people claim, well, that means that Jesus, this is Jesus. He's the beginning of God's creation, so he was created. I, I don't think that's the case. Because if you remember, every time that God, in these seven churches, every time that God identifies himself, it's, it goes back to the original revelation. In chapter 1, and look in verse 5. Here he's starting, he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, we just read, said that, the faithful and true witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So it says he's the firstborn of the dead. So he's saying, hey, I lived my life on this earth, a perfect, faultless life. And then I died, and I rose again. What he's saying is, I am the firstborn of a new creation. When I died and I rose again, inaugurated a new creation, a new kingdom that's going to come. We don't often think about that. But there's a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that is here already. And it's in the person and it's in the body of Christ. He started it. So we've seen it. Well, we haven't seen it, but we have have heard of it. But the new creation and the new kingdom has come in a little part. But not yet, not in full. And so I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, I am the firstborn of the dead, just like as a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. But then we come to the problem. The problem in verses 15 through 16, and he says this, I know your works, and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Notice here, I don't know if you've caught it, but all the other six churches, there was at least something that Jesus commended about them. In this verse, in this chapter, there's nothing commendable from Laodicea. And then he says, I know your works. Nothing escapes the Lord's grasp. Nothing escapes his sight. Many times we do a catechism or some questions with our kids. And one of the questions is, where is God? And the answer, of course, is God is everywhere, right? And then the next question that follows is, can we see God? And the answer of the catechism is no, but he can always see us. Isn't that true? But not only does he see our works, but he sees our desires, our feelings, our thoughts. And so we come to this very popular part of the lukewarm church. It says, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'll spit you out of your mouth. Now, past interpretations, I always heard it growing up, or I've, I've heard it up until maybe a couple years ago, that they were, he, it says, well, the, you know, the problem with this church is they were just lukewarm in their hearts. They weren't on fire for the Lord, or 
and but they weren't, uh, you know, far away from him, being cold. They were just lukewarm, kind of middle of the road in their desires for the Lord. Now, granted, the Lord does hate lukewarm hearts, but I don't think that's the case here. I mean, I, you can go to, through a, a whole bunch of other texts and see that the Lord does not like a heart that is just lukewarm towards him. But I don't think that's what's, what's being said here. And, and the reason I don't think that's what's being said is because I think there's other a different interpretation. But I, also, it all, I always with the fact of, would the Lord really desire people to be far from him? I mean, did he always... It, I, that was the part that I just I didn't get. I was like, why would the Lord desire people to be cold towards him? But the original hearers in Laodicea, they would have understood these verses far different. Because uh, just a few miles from them, in Colossae, the church of uh, Colossians, or the book of Colossians was written to this church. It was about 15 miles to the east. And the church of Colossae, or the city of Colossae, was, was well known because they had incredible water. Their water source was mountain runoff. And so they were, you know, they had the, if they would... If they had bottled water back then, everybody would want the bottled water from Colossae because that water was fantastic. It was cold. It was nourishing. It tasted great. But there was also another city close by Laodicea. There was a tri-city area called Aeropolis. Aeropolis was just to the northeast of them. And Aeropolis was known not for their cold mountain runoff, but they had hot springs that people would travel from, and they would get... You know, kind of like a go to a hot tub. They would, or even people now would go to to the hot springs in, in Colorado or other places and be and re, be rejuvenated. But the church of or the city of Laodicea was not that way. They had a lot of things going for them, as we'll find out. But they one thing they didn't have was a good water source, and so they aqueducts or creates uh, ways to get water to their city. And by the time it got to their city, not only was it lukewarm, but it was full of all these minerals and everything else in this water. And so they would drink it, and it would just make them ill, make them sick. And so what God is doing is he's telling them, these people, you know what? You're just like this water in your city. It's just gross and disgusting. It's an incredible image. Such an affront to our senses. In fact, even as we talk about that, I think you can probably, something comes to your mind when you remember a lukewarm taste of water. You know, when you've had it and you just want to spit it out out to your mouth. Doesn't something come to your mind? I mean, for for me, maybe young kids, you need to cut ears. But in college, I sat um, around in a table with about 10 guys. And there was, it it varied from every every meal. But we would come come and sit down. And you could, we ate at this cafeteria that was all you could eat. Unwritten rule that once you came and sat down with your food, you never left that food alone. Because if you left that food alone, it was subject to anything happening to that food. You know, there would, the salt shaker or some sugar was inevitably poured in, or anything else that could be dissolved in water was poured into that, that water. And so um, that was... That was Perhaps a bad analogy, but one that immediately came to my mind because uh, you only had to experience that one time. But um, 
He says, this isn't simple. Look at the verses. It says in, here in verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, some people, some of them tone it down. But it's, that's kind of not doing the verse justice because it's not simply spitting you out of, your mouth, out of the mouth. But the literal is vomit you out of the, your, his mouth. Because this water would make them sick. So you would, not only would you want to spit it out, but it would come in to your stomach. And it would, all the minerals and everything that was in this water was just disgusting to them. It would make them ill. <clears throat> Speaking of water, I <clears throat> So he says, you're just like this disgusting that made God ill. I think the answer... The problem explained is in verse 17. It's that they were just like everybody else around them. He says this, For you say I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The problem is they had it all. They had been so prosperous. They were so self-reliant that they needed God not at all. In fact, there is a story that some of the uh, the ancient writers talk about that there was an earthquake in AD 60, and it came and it wiped out the church uh, or the city of Laodicea. And so they were part of the the Roman government, the Roman Empire. And so the church, the I keep saying the church. I don't know why. The city, the city of Rome, and the the nation of Rome came to them and said, you know, we'll help you rebuild your city. The city of Laodicea was so wealthy, so affluent, so well off, they said, no thanks, Rome. We'll take care of it. We'll do it better ourselves. That's how wealthy they were. And so, but God is saying, you are just like the city that you live in. This wealthy city, you are a people indistinguishable from your neighbors. Their hope was in this world. So they had two problems. They were living for this world, And they were totally uh, indistinguishable from their neighbors. Their witness was poor. So how do I get that? I don't see that anywhere in this text. Well, remember, there's a clue. We'll get to the the reason for that in the verses after. But also look before. Because remember what we talked about. Jesus is the solution to the problem. And so he's saying in verse 14, he's saying, I am the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He's saying, you know what? You guys are not an unfaithful witness. You are not true. You are not speaking out when maybe you need to be. But I am a faithful and true witness. You're not looking to the new creation. I'm the beginning of the new creation, but you're not looking to that. You think you're rich. You think you're rich in earthly terms, but you are not. You're poor. You're wretched. And then he says, I'm the amen. I'm the true God. In the midst of all your other gods that you have, of your affluence, I'm the true God. And I just think of, of how amazing this was to the church of Laodicea. For them to, you know, they, as the, this was being read to all these other churches, you know, they thought they had it all together. And Jesus comes to them at the end, the last book, the, or the last chapter, And Jesus says, not even with any commendation, and he says, you think you're rich? You think you have it all? You don't have anything. They're not 
They were, they were so deluded. They had a great self-esteem, but they were their own measuring stick. They had a problem, and they didn't even see it. We all have our blind spots, don't we? You know, this was compared to the church of Smyrna. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, it says to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So he contrasts them and he says, you think you're affluent, but you're not. Notice, though, too, in here, he says that they think there's three things true of them, but God identifies five things that are wrong with them. They think that they're, they've prospered. They think they're rich. They think they need nothing. But he says, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So I ask you, by what point of application, is that true of us as a church? Is that true of you? You know, I, we were traveling back from, from Colorado last week, or last night, yesterday, and just, um, just thinking about this verse and of how prevalent this is in our culture. And, and over the, we, were, we stopped at a, at, a, um, at a Culver's, and over the, over the loudspeaker, the radio, a country song was coming on, and it said this, we cuss on them Mondays and pray on them Sundays. You know, isn't that so true of so many people in this America? You're able to live like everybody else on a, on a Monday cuss on them Mondays, and come to church and pray on them Sundays. Or I was talking to another individual. He used to work at one of my, uh, our customers. And he was talking to me, and he said, you know what, and this was totally unprovoked. We've had a couple uh, spiritual conversations, but this was totally unprovoked. He said, I know this is going to shock you, but I'm a deeply religious man. I'm a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, and the Lutheran Church. <laughs> And, and then he contradicted himself a number of other ways, too. But he said, why did he say, I know this is going to shock you? The reason he said that was because I've known this guy for nine months, and he almost talked to him every day. And the way a Christian should live, or what he thinks his interpretation of, of being a good guy, is so far different. But yet... He says, I know this is going to shock you. I'm deeply religious. I've thought a whole lot about religious things. But yet his life bears no resemblance of that. So it's easy to look at those people, isn't it? To think that those people need to be different. But how about for us? How are we at Rock Valley Bible Church? Are we different than the culture? Are we different than the church down the street? Do we watch the same things? Do we talk the same? Do we gossip in the same way? Do we spend the same amount of time on the internet? Kids, how do you spend your time? Do you you live to watch movies? Do you love playing video games just like everybody else? Or is your heart and your mind on the things that are spiritual? See, because I would argue we are far more affluent than the Laodiceans. And here's the danger. The closer we are to a position of power, the greater the danger. You know, I remember Steve, I go with Steve to Nepal and in India. And it was so easy to see that church and the faults and the ways in which they were in their culture and they had compromised. And it was 
hard not to, to be unprovoked and tell them the ways in which they were, had screwed up. But how hard it is for us. You know, it's so easy for somebody from the outside to look in and see the ways we've compromised. But so hard for us. It's extremely, it's extremely difficult when you're part of the culture. But then we see a solution. We see a solution again in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your wickedness may not be seen and salve for your eyes so that you may see. So he gives three illustrations. Listen, these cannot be an accident. These were put there purposefully by the Lord. Laodicea was incredibly affluent. They were affluent in three ways. Number one, they were the banking mecca of that area. Everybody would flock to that area to do their banking. Number two, they they would make clothes in Laodicea that were well-known worldwide. They were highly desirable. Number three, they had eye salve that was sought throughout the entire Roman culture. They had three things that were highly desirable and greatly sought after. But he's saying, don't pursue the things of this world. Don't go down to the market. Perhaps you're sellers of at the market. You can get everything at your market, but you know what? Our spiritual, our eternal, buy first from the Lord the gold which is refined by fire. Maybe you need to have the gold, that character, under persecution. Maybe you need to be, live a life that's a little different from everybody else in your culture. Maybe you need to have the character that's refined by persecution. You need to be different. You need to have a heart that is focused and set on things above, not on this world. You know, there was a story I heard from Ron Blue, he told me. He's a financial advisor, very wealthy Christian uh, advisor. And he told the story, I heard it a couple weeks ago. He said he would always go to a Chick-fil-A every week with his son, and he would eat, eat and um, he went week after week, and there was one cashier who, who was incredibly, did her job incredibly well. And so one day he wanted, to, uh, wanted to, to tip her, and so he went up and he, he said, excuse me, do you take tips? And she said, well, sure. And uh, so he reached into his pocket, and uh, he had a 20. And he said, it was almost as like the Lord said, you cheapskate. And so he, he reached in and he gave her five 20s. And he left. So he came back the next, the next week. And he said, uh, and the, you know, they greet, had the, the usual greeting, and they got talking, and she said, you know, thanks so much for that money, but I, in church, I heard about a, a fan, one of our fan, uh, one of the members in our church, she, had, uh, they were in a fire, and they lost everything. And I thought they need this money far, far more than me, and so I gave them your tip. So, so thank you for for that. And so his question was, who is the rich person in this story? God is asking them the same, same question here. 
You know, they thought that they were incredibly rich. They had all the gold. They were the banking center of this area. But God says, that doesn't matter. You need the richness of character through perseverance. You need the richness that comes through me. But you know, it's interesting. God doesn't say, all through the Bible, there are warnings against being rich. Now, God, it's not a sin to be rich, but there are great warnings if you are rich. And keep in mind, we are all rich, every one of us here. But notice, God wants you to be rich. If you look here, he says, I counsel you so that you may be rich. I love the phrase from the quote from Randy Alcorn. He says, you know, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. There's a familiar chat verse in Matthew 6. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in the steel. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there is a treasure that we can have that is desirable. What is the treasure in heaven? You know, there is a, there is a common perspective, a wrong perspective in Christians. The idea is that when we all get to heaven, we're all going to be the same. Now, that's correct in, the, in one sense. In the sense of our entrance into heaven is based on nothing else other than Jesus' perfect life and his perfect resurrection and our trust and our belief in that. But there is another way in which that is very untrue. Some of us will be far richer in heaven than others. 1 Corinthians 3, this is talking about believers because he's, as, as we'll see, listen carefully. Starting in verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day, meaning the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be re- revealed by fire. Again, gold refined by fire. And the fire will test what sort of, each, of work each one has done. If that, the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's saying there's gold that's refined by fire. Some stuff you're building on this foundation, this foundation of Christ. Some of you are building straw and hay. You know what? At the end of the day, at the judgment day, it's all going to be burned up. Go in to heaven. You'll make it. But that's all you'll have. Some of you are building, are sending your gifts on ahead, your gold that will be refined by fire. Secondly, he says, buy from me clothes. Don't go to the clothes that everybody wants in Laodicean market. He says, buy from me clothes that you can get that are spiritual. Because spiritually, you're naked, you're pitiable, you're poor. Buy those white garments, those white garments of purity. Buy from for the new kingdom. Remember Sardis? The church of Sardis, verses 4, in chapter 3, it says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled the garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
Or else, in a couple other places in Revelation, Revelation 7.14, he says, And he said to me, The ones who are coming out of the great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Or the last chapter, chapter 21.14, Blessed is the one who has washed their robes. Again, God wants you to have nice clothes. He says it here. He says, And white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He wants you to have nice clothes in heaven. The white garments of righteousness, of purity. The righteousness of persevering until the end. And then lastly, he says this. You to get from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have spiritual eyes to desire God? I was reminded about, about, of a wonderful story. Story of William Montague. When he was ten years old, he became blind, and then he he. Uh, this was back in the the eighteenth century, the old aristocratic England. He was a, <clears throat> he, and he went to a university where he got where he earned high honors. And when he was in school there, he fell in love with a daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer, and they became engaged. But not long before the wedding, there was a break, and his father-in-law, her father-in-law, uh, impressed upon him to get this surgery. And so, if it was successful, he would be able to see. If it was not, he would be blind for the rest of his life. And so he agreed to it. But he said this: He said, "Leave the bandages on until my wedding day." Because if the, if the surgery is successful, the first thing I want to see is my new bride. Well, the wedding day arrived, and many guests, including royalty, cabinet members, and distinguished men and women, assembled together to see and witness the exchanging of their vows. And as the organ played, everybody stood. I don't know if that's true, but they, uh, that's what happened. The bride slowly walked down the aisle. She got to the altar. His bandages were removed from his eyes. There was tension in the room. The congregation of witnesses held their breath as they waited to see if William could see. Then he stood face to face with his bride-to-be, and William's words echoed throughout the cathedral. You are more beautiful than I ever imagined. That's a beautiful story. One day, our bandages will be and we will see the Lord. We will be the bride of Christ. We will look at the groom, and we will say, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. But in a small way, we need to see that now. We need the, as it says in Hebrews, I believe, we need to see through a veil dimly. We need to see through the glass dimly. To be able to see, we need our spiritual blinders removed in part now so that we can see. You see, outside of God giving us ears to hear and eyes to see, we are blind. And so he says, you know, it's interesting. These three things that they took pride in, they took pride in their riches, in their banking. They took pride in their clothes. They took pride. 
to have that was sought throughout the world. He says, you know what? Those three things, you need to get them from me. And he says, you know what? That thing that's so disgusting, so distasteful to you, that you have to import in, that your lukewarm water that makes you ill, that's what you need from me. Or, that, or that's what characterizes you. That thing that's an embarrassment or a sense of awkwardness to you. You are the very thing that is distasteful of the, about the water. You see, here's the danger for us in affluent America. The more we are self-dependent, the less spiritually sensitive we are. And the less spiritually sensitive we are, the less we fellowship with God. G.K. Beale, a great commentator, he calls this the anesthesia of affluence. Is that not true? It's kind of just dulls us. We don't sense our spiritual need. We, we're so self-dependent that we don't need God. We're anesthetized by the affluence in our lives. We're so blind to our sin. We're so blind to the ways in which we're just like everybody else. We're so blind to the ways in which we are not having eyes to focus on the things that are eternal, things that are spiritual. We're so focused on the things of this world. That's convicting to me, I hope, and trust is convicting to you. And here's, again, the heart of Christ in verse 19. He says this, For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I don't know what you do to people that are repulsive to you, that disgust you, that are sickening. Personally, I want to push them as far from me as possible. Do you see the heart of God? He wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. But even so, he says, he loves them enough to correct them, to reprove them, to tell them, change. Be zealous. Repent. That's a good lesson for you parents. We must follow God. We love children. We will correct and reprove them. The encouragement for us is to be zealous and repent. Everything is on the line. And then in verse 20 he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So many times I've viewed this as like this beggar who wants some food, who's knocking on the door and saying, let me in, let me in. Well, the first thing is, keep in mind, this is Jesus talking to the church. It's as though he's knocking at the front door of our church saying, will you let me in? Will you let me in? But there's a way to interpret Revelation. You know, I think the big danger is the reason people stay away from Revelation is because, number one, some people get so focused on it and they get so focused on current events and they say, this is happening and, uh, because, and so this is a clear allusion to this in Revelation, which there's a great danger in that. In fact, the, the Lord uh, gives a great warning in the, in the end of chapter 22. He says, if anybody adds or subtracts, to these words in Revelation. You will be punished. But 
There is a way to interpret Revelation. It's not necessarily looking forward to current events. But so many times, all these allusions are to the Old Testament. But you want to understand Revelation? You want to be blessed? You want to do the things that are in Revelation? If you understand, want to understand Revelation, look to the examples and the allusions in the Old Testament. This, verse 20, is knocking, is a clear allusion to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 5. Solomon is knocking at the, the door of his, his new bride. And keep in mind, this is not, Solomon was not a poor beggar. He had everything. And he was, he, his bride was made lovely because he saw the beauty in her and she became lovely. But it says this, the bride is speaking, I slept and my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. And that the, the groom says, Open to me, Solomon says, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew. So what does she respond? She responds, she's saying, Well, I can't get up now. I'm, I'm in bed. I'll have to get dressed. And then she says, Oh, Anna, my feet will get dirty. I'll have to go wash my feet again. Anna, I'm, I'm tired. But his love arouses her and she goes and opens the door, and he's gone. <clears throat> but she goes and finds him. But the, the illusion here is, the, is to the groom being Christ and his bride being the church. And the question is, as we as a church, are we going to listen to God's knocking at our door? Are we going to go, or are we going to go after other lovers that will ultimately frustrate and disappoint or will we return to our first love, to Christ? And he says, if you do, he's knocking. He says, you think you have it all together, but I'm willing to still knock at the door. And I'm willing to come in, and I'll share a meal with you. I'll, you can experience intimacy with Christ if you're willing to be zealous and repent. And then we see in verse 21, verse 21, lastly, the result it says this, For the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, God is enthroned. I don't know if you, you know somebody who maybe grew up in your, in your hometown and then went off and became highly successful. Nine times out of ten, that person, he ignored everything. everything. That hometown, right? Jesus, he's gone to a far country, but he has not left us to our own devices. He has not ignored us. Rather, he intercedes from the right hand of Literal, um, if you try to take an Im- image of this, it says, he who conquers, I will grant to him to sit on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's not like there's going to be a 70-mile-long throne that we all sit on, or like this this envy where we're all on everybody's shoulders. This is an illustration of the new earth will be in a position of power. We will rule, he says, if you don't focus on this world. It will only happen by following the one who has gone before us, the firstborn from the dead. He is in all his glory, 
And if we overcome, we will reign and rule with him. Because he's the faithful and true witness. What he says is true. He's the amen. He's the true God. In the midst and in the world of all these counterfeit gods, he's the true God. He is the amen. He's the faithful witness. And he is the firstborn of the dead. We can only experience this rule and this reign with Christ if we understand what he's done for us. I'll close with with a story I heard. I don't know the validity of this, but it's an incredible story all, all the same. There's a story told back in the 1850s. There was a young Englishman. He heard about the gold rush in California. And he, so he crossed the Atlantic Ocean, went over to California, and eventually struck it rich. So on his way home, he decided to stop by New Orleans. Not long into a visit, he saw a crowd of people going in the same direction. So he figured he'd go and he'd see what was going on. He goes and he sees that and they're just as an older woman is being sold. And then the next person he sees walking up on the, the stage is a young, beautiful black woman. And he hears all the vile jokes and the comments and the evil intentions of those men who are standing around laughing. So the bidding begins. It goes higher and higher. Finally, two men are still in the, in the, the bidding war. One back and forth, back and forth. Until one of them stops. <clears throat> and the... Excuse me. So the, <clears throat> the auctioneer says, going once, going twice. This Englishman who had made his price exactly half, double of the previous bid. Everybody turns and looks at him and just laughs. It was more money than even a, any man or even young, a young man would have earned at that time. But he shows his money, his gold that he had earned. And to the amusement of everybody, the auctioneer awards him the young woman. As the young girl is walking down the platform, she, there's eye to eye. And she looks at him and spits at him in the face. He wipes the spit from his face And without a word, he takes the girl by the hand. And they go down the street as though he's looking for something. He looks for something, and he sees this building. And he goes, he has a heated between with the man in the building. And he comes back out. And he looks at the girl. She looks at him and spits at him in the face. Without a word, he wipes the spit from his face. And he gives her her emancipation papers. He says, free. She spits at him again. And he says, just look. These are your freedom papers. You're free to go. She looks down. She says, sees indeed it is papers that are her freedom papers. At which point 
she falls apart. She weeps, she falls to the ground, her tears are on his boots. And she says, you bought me and now you're setting me free. She continues to sob and to weep. And she says, when she comes to, she says, I have but one request. Will you make me your slave forever? See, that's a great illustration of the young Englishman as Jesus. And if we have eyes to see, we are like that slave who has been bought so that we can... The problem with the church of Laodicea is that they thought they were like the Englishman. They thought they were the one who had all the money. They thought they could purchase whatever they want. They did not have eyes to see that they are, and they are just like that poor slave. Bought so that we can be free. If we see that, if we have eyes to see, the things of this world won't matter. We will say, will you but make us your slave forever? So the question is, will you have eyes to see? I mean real eyes, spiritual eyes. Will you pray with me? Lord, the church of Laodicea was not commended for anything because of their way in which they had compromised their witness to the world. How easy it is for us to compromise. Lord, I pray you'd give us eyes to see because outside of that, we're blind. We think we're right. We think we're our own measuring stick. Lord, would you give us eyes to desire the things that are eternal, the, the gold, the white garments, and the eyes from you. In Jesus' name, amen.